What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, I sat down with Paige Schultz, co-founder and CEO of Topanga.io, a technology platform powering reusable container programs of the future. In this episode, we'll define what the circular economy truly means, how it can help save businesses money in the long run, and talk about its deployments for meal delivery services, college campuses, and more. This podcast is brought to you by Hungry, a media and research platform dedicated to the intersection of food and technology. For more information, please visit Hungry.tv, that's Hungry with no U, and click subscribe to join the weekly newsletter. Paige, it's awesome to have you here. Uh, thanks for making the time. I'd love for you to start and just talk about your background in research and media and then kind of how you transitioned over to sustainability and founded Topanga. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, my professional career has been a complete zigzag in terms of the types of companies that I've worked for and types of work that I've done. But I would say common thread throughout and common thread I still get to use today is really understanding what makes people tick and what drives people to take a specific action. Um, so I started out in consulting, was doing a lot of due diligence research with McKinsey and Ernst and Young. Um, and then from that moved into the world of advertising, where it was really understanding, okay, we're going to hit this specific audience with this specific ad and we want them to buy movie tickets. What types of creative can we use? What types of copy can we use? And then from there kind of moved into specifically working on digital ad strategy with some CPG companies. Um, the last one was really sustainability focused. Um, so they were making compostable alternatives to single use plastics who are really challenging Solo and Dixie and Chinette and these big kind of single use companies with a compostable alternative. And through doing that work, both from an audience development perspective of what can we tell you that will get you to make the sustainable choice, but also from a supply chain perspective of what does it mean to make a sustainable product? Um, that got me really interested in kind of the science behind sustainability. Um, so started taking some graduate courses at UCLA on sustainable supply chains. And that's where I came to Tabanga and realized that there's a huge opportunity for reusable packaging. Very cool. I didn't realize that there's actually a program uh, dedicated to that. That's really uh, fascinating. Is it like a more recent thing? Yes. Um, UCLA is a big school in Columbia too, and just starting to be a lot more and kind of, okay, business also needs to involve this thought of sustainability <laughs> and how do we marry those courses? Very cool. So yeah, a lot to talk about. I think I want to kind of take a broader uh, look at first and just at the term circular economy which has basically become a buzzword from my vantage point. I think there's not a a um, completely completely agreed upon definition of it. Um, so I'd love for you to just talk about how you're looking at the circular economy and defining it. And then maybe if you can talk a little bit about this 9R framework, that would also be really cool. Yeah, definitely. Circular economy, it's interesting. I think it is kind of becoming this hot buzzword like sustainability was a few years ago, where it's this very broad term that people are kind of slapping onto an article or slapping onto a corporate initiative without actually defining what it means to them. And so I think the circular economy at large is an amazing principle of how can we take this linear model of consumption that we've had for the past 70 some years 
and start to involve circular practices, which could mean we're going to recycle more plastics, or it could mean we're going to do better at composting our food waste, or it could mean we're going to reuse everything so that there's no byproduct of our method of consumption. So I think it's the broad term is great. It's representative of this kind of ideological framework. But for it to really be meaningful, I think everybody who uses it needs to also do the work of defining what circularity means to them, which for us in today's day and age for our current products is truly reusable packaging and ensuring that something that's in our system gets reused as many times as possible before needing to kind of be retired. So that's it. And the nine hour framework, I think, applies to that broad definition of circularity, which is there's a lot of different methods and kind of gut checks that we can take as consumers or as businesses before we decide to discard something from a landfill. So it's really, okay, I bought this sweater. It can be as simple as that. And it's broken. Do I choose to repair it first? And then maybe I repair it. I sew on some new buttons and it's still, it breaks again. I completely worn it out at the end of its useful life. And then maybe I choose to recycle it. And then those fabrics can get broken down. So I think it's really kind of thinking holistically on how can we extend the useful life of a product before we write it off and try to buy a new one. Very interesting. So there's no, there's no one size fits all kind of definition here. It seems it's more um, applying frameworks to what your goals are. It is. And it would, of course, be easier for everybody if there was a one size fits all definition, but um, unfortunately, it's it's not realistic. Do you think this idea of like um, recycling plastic or melting plastic um, is like you know belongs within like traditional recycling belong within the circular economy? Are we past that? Is that kind of is there a greenwashing going on here? Uh, I guess like draw the line for us of where circular economy should and shouldn't be used. Yeah, I think that it definitely belongs in practice, right? Like if things were recycled the way that we think that they're recycled, then that would be wonderful. But the reality is that things recycling isn't perfect. And just because you throw something in your bin, the chances that it actually gets to the recycling facility actually gets recycled, melted down, remanufactured into plastic are slim to none. So I think it really goes back to better educating on kind of how systems work up front to the average consumer and understanding kind of the intentionality and the data. The data is really kind of what we stand for a lot is if you're taking an action that you believe is better, but you haven't done the work to measure that, then how do you know? Um, and I think that's one thing that's huge for recycling, but also reuse is, again, on paper, it might be great. That might be a great practice. But if we can't actually do the work to understand we've truly made a difference or we have a path towards making a positive difference, then it's not the right solution. Right. Very interesting, which yeah, that makes me think a lot about like systems thinking, um, which I, I think fits well into, you know, the segue of Topanga. I'd love for you to kind of talk about the various constituencies you work with, you have lots of different sides of um, kind of the circular economy you're dealing with. And I'd love to know like who your customer is and then all these different entities that kind of interact around that and kind of what the pitch is to getting them all bought into something. Yeah, definitely. Systems thinking is a huge piece of it. And I think it's something that we kind of keep coming back to, too, as we continue to evolve and build our products, which I can speak to more in depth. But even in the products that we have today, 
you can't just build a product that serves the fulfillment team, or you can't just build a product that serves end consumers because it's a system and everybody needs to speak the same language and have some level of kind of continuity between stakeholders in order for circularity to truly be achievable. So that's really something we've taken to heart as we look to build our products and understand kind of how we serve all of these diverse stakeholders in a circular system. So going back to Topanga, uh, we are an enterprise technology company. Um, we help businesses prove out that the sustainable choice can also be a positive business choice. So really today we're proving that economic and environmental ROI go hand in hand. Today, that's focused on track and trace software for reusable packaging. We have a range of customers, but our biggest market is in the university and higher ed campus space, where, again, we really have products that touch both those senior level decision makers at these schools, these day-to-day operators who are working in the kitchen, back of house and front of house, and then also tools for the end consumers, the students. So, that's kind of that systems thinking approach is you can't just design software or a system that works for one of those stakeholders. You need to figure out something that works for everybody who might participate. Very interesting. And so, yeah, I'd love for you to just kind of talk about those different module or modules you've built. And then like, I'm assuming you're not touching any of the packaging as well. I'd love for you to just talk about, you know, kind of who you're working with on that front and uh, kind of, yeah, what, what innovations you're seeing there? Yeah, absolutely. So from kind of a modules perspective, like I noted, we have a, a range of tools that kind of serve different stakeholders in a system. So to get more specific there, we're an API-based system. So we have a handful of integrations and customizations, but at its core, we have a dashboard and that gives kind of the key decision makers who you can think of as the packaging owners insights into how their program is performing. Are you on track to hit that environmental economic break-even point, or are you not getting enough reuses out of each piece of packaging? And we need to kind of pull some levers to make the system perform better. There's also then the track and trace tool, which today is our scan app. Think of that as a data capture tool. It understands where packaging is, who last had it, and starts to kind of make predictions on when it's going to be back in circulation. And then the last is the consumer-facing application. So again, it's like checking out a library book. How many books do you have? How many pieces of packaging do you have? When are they due back? And what has your impact been to date by participating? And yeah, to your point, we are we're the software. We're not manufacturers of the packaging, um, but we have a lot of great partners who are in the packaging space. And what we can do is when we onboard a new client or we onboard a new type of packaging into our system, we can actually benchmark and say, okay, this is this type of packaging. It's made from whatever, 90% recycled polypropylene. And then we can start to understand how many life cycles that piece of packaging is going to get before it needs to be recycled or landfilled at the end of its useful life so we can help our clients and our packaging manufacturers make better material decisions to ensure that their products are really lasting as long as possible and performing as high as possible based on the conditions. Um, one trend that we've started to see a lot of, which is amazing and kind of goes back to the nine R's as well as just kind of circular economy at large is a lot of p- packaging manufacturers increasingly putting in take back programs. So if they use a specific color and specific type of plastic, they'll have in their agreement that they'll take that back and they'll own responsibility for breaking it down and remanufacturing it, 
which I think is a broader trend of kind of increasing awareness to like this mass recycling system is wonderful in theory, but it really doesn't work in practice. So businesses are starting to take on some of that responsibility to fill the gaps. And like, who who would you say like are the key end users of this? Like when, when you're talking about like getting somebody who's like the kind of decision maker at the university, like who is that person? And, you know, um, ultimately, I guess they have to work with the food service company to, you know, adopt this. And I guess we'll get into this, but, um, I just kind of curious, like who you, who's like essentially be forced to do this and who's like making the decision as a result of that, or like whose mind do you have to change the most? Yeah. So typically who we're dealing with, it kind of depends based off the scenario, but it's usually a director of dining operations, which I would say is equivalent to like a COO at a quick service restaurant, right? They're ultimately, it's really an operational call of, are we going to switch from giving out single use packaging and having paper goods be a line item on our P&L to having it now be reusable packaging, which we can save money from, but we'll need to train the teams operationally on how to take that back, wash it and recirculate it, right? Um, so it's really operations at its core. Of course, sustainability roles come into this. They're advocates for our program, but they're not the ones who at the end of the day are gonna be on the ground trying to execute and work with reusable packaging. Yeah, so you, you mentioned about like kind of this economic versus um, was in environmental versus ec- versus economic like kind of trade off or essentially when those when those lines cross. Uh, I guess if you can help us understand a little bit more about that, it's basically just looking at something as a one off kind of um, piece of packaging versus something that you can just stretch it over the course of its life. Is that kind of the the trade-off there? Yeah, exactly. So from a economic perspective, right, it's really the question is per use. So what is the cost of the single-use packaging that you're buying today? And how many times would you need to reuse X type of reusable packaging to have that cost per use be equivalent or less than? And on the reuse side, that equation gets a bit more complicated because it also has to account for the cost of washing, cost for logistics, if that's in the picture, any cost of added labor, all of that good stuff. So that's really the cost kind of parity equation that we're looking at. And then from the environmental standpoint, there's a lot of kind of life cycle assessments that have been done on reusable packaging, depending on exactly those considerations, how many kind of long mile logistics are involved, what type of washing solutions are being inputted into the system. Is it stainless steel or glass or plastic? And so then it's also taking into account how many times does this type of reusable packaging need to be reused in order to be environmentally better than the single-use alternative, right? So in a lot of scenarios, actually, reuse, if you just take a standard reusable plastic container versus a single-use compostable or even single-use plastic container, you still need to get the reusable container reused three to five to six times before it's truly the environmentally superior option versus single use. And I think that kind of goes back to these misconceptions we were talking about earlier with circular economy and recycling is it's like, you've got to dive a little deeper and look at the data. You can't just say, okay, I've built a reusable system, you know, come and try it. It's better. 
but you need to be able to say, I built the system. Things are getting reused enough times so that we're on track to being better. And this is the true opportunity to pursue. Very interesting. And so you, you have like the, the break even point for like the environment and the environmental costs that you kind of laid out. But like, what about how, how, like on average, how, how many uses do you think you need to get to when you account for all this overhead of washing it and delivering it? You know, on average, I know there's not every, every, uh, example is going to be very different every installation, but, um, if you, if I'm a restaurant operator, how would I be thinking about this as far as like a payback to the bottom line? Yeah. And of course, the other big question there is inventory as well. How minimal of inventory can you take and still actually fulfill daily demand with the returns that you want to see? But on average, we kind of look at a five to 10 use break even point, depending on those variables we've discussed, which is it, it's totally doable. It's like that's not outside the realm of possibility to get on average five to 10 reuses, but it does take being really intentional um, because things can fall out of circulation if you're not tracking them. Totally. So, yeah, I mean, it's basically you'd have to get that customer to come into the restaurant if it's not a campus. Right. And we'll, we'll get into like the different types of use mm-hmm. cases. But if it's a restaurant, you know, you're going to have that customer come in once a month and they have to bring that same container back five to 10 times. So pretty much like the entire year they're your customer, right? Was that, would that be one way to look at it? Yeah. Or yeah, that would be one way to look at it or think, you know, I'm a restaurant, I buy 20 containers, um, and I want them each returned within one day so that like each container has a shot of being used you know, four times a week, let's just say. It's also, there's kind of some math there where it doesn't have to be the same participant, but as long as like the piece of packaging has the option to get used that many times, then like there's your path towards, towards success. Very interesting. So yeah, I'd love for you to uh, talk about some of the, some of these case studies um, and kind of how you, how, what the consumer facing kind of flow looks like step, step by step, kind of start to finish. And then kind of what, what those metrics are that you're tracking in these pilots or in these, you know, kind of deployments. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so today from a customer perspective, I would say we have a pretty high barrier to entry, um, just because of the nature that where we're starting and this kind of intentionality of we want to have a path towards hitting that environmental and economic threshold. If we don't see that, then we're not going to take the client on. Um, That's just kind of where we're at as a business. It's more important to us to be intentional about the outcome than to take on every opportunity that crosses our desk. Um, So what that student experience looks like is they'll join the program, they'll opt in, they'll give some core kind of information, um, and then they, once they've opted in, they get access to their personal reuse pass QR code. And that's like their library card. That's a unique identifier that allows them to kind of check out containers as they see fit and understand how many they have in their possession, what their impact has been, all of that good stuff. Because we create that one-to-one relationship between a piece of packaging and the student or the customer, that means that as containers get returned and they're being washed and recirc- and sanitized for recirculation, then they're also being checked back in. And so we know that this consumer returned this container on X date, right? We can kind of figure out that whole inventory return picture. 
So then what we're looking at high level is return rate is kind of the high level health check of how many containers that went out into the world are coming back in. And that's great. If that's low to begin with, then you're not going to have any option of getting containers reused, right? If they're not returned, can't be reused. But then going a level deeper into, okay, we have kind of the foundation built for this system. Students or consumers know to return these. And we know that there's operationally kind of a foundation in place to rinse them and recirculate them. That's when we get into kind of those more interesting metrics of reuse rate. How many times is this container actually on track to get reused before it needs to be retired? And that cost per use, which is, is this container actually on track to be the more economically efficient option than single use? How many times are these getting used? Um, as well as just kind of other kind of system health checks of, do we know that each time this student returns a container that it's getting scanned back in? Or is that like an operational gap? So if we're integrated with the third party logistics provider and their service in Miami is never scanning containers as picked up, then we know that that's kind of a health check that we need to diagnose because otherwise you're going to have an incomplete data system and just kind of an incomplete picture of where your assets are at at any point in time. But yeah, it's really kind of at its core. It is that reuse rate and that kind of cost per use. Very interesting. A lot of um, levers to think about. So it sounds like they're logging onto your website and they're like essentially managing their own account or it's through the university that they're pulling it through your API. How does that kind of relationship initially get formed? They, they know about Topanga? Yeah, so it's through our own account, um, or it's through Reuse Pass as our consumer-facing application. But to date, you can only sign up kind of through an organization. So you could sign up, Matt, at, you know, Wash U St. Louis, but you would have to kind of enter student credentials in mm. order to get access to that environment. And so, like, I'd love to hear, like, how these, you know, different, I guess, uh, would you call them pilots? Are they, like, deployments at this at this point? I would love to hear, like, a, you know, just some, I guess, qualitative and quantitative, like, feedback from from your customers of, like, or the, these different entities, right? What are customers saying or students saying? What are the universities saying? And what are, like, you know, the Compass Group, you know, Sodexo types, uh, food service companies that are doing all the, the, you know, campus catering saying about the switch? Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting. So definitely a mix of pilots and deployments, um, but a lot of mature contracts and kind of relationships at this point. We're on about 27 campuses wow. across the U.S. and Canada. Um, and then we have about three major clients in the retail and meal prep delivery space. Um, so campuses very much our focus. It's interesting though, because in the campus environment, a lot of these organizations have tried reuse in the past and have stopped doing it because students came on campus. They want more sustainable options. The school started offering a reuse takeout program, but at the end of each quarter, or at the end of each month, they would realize they no longer had any reusable containers because they weren't getting returned. So it was effectively like a more expensive and less sustainable single use program, right? 
And so that's really kind of where we came in is because we have this layer of software that drives accountability among the end user by telling you, you know, what's in your possession and sending you reminders, hey, return this, return this, and you'll be eligible for a reward. Don't return this and you might get a late fee. And then on the flip side, we also have kind of these inventory management tools to understand, do you have enough on hand to fulfill tomorrow's to-go demand and things of that nature? We've really seen a huge kind of positive shift. Um, and we're not the only player in the space by any means, but we've seen a lot of positive feedback of, okay, this makes me feel like there is an opportunity to offer reuse and have it be viable from a business and a kind of sustainability perspective. Um, it's really interesting too, like so many of these campuses, they have huge lofty sustainability goals that are put in place by board of directors and the president of the university, who's very removed from the operators who are like, I'm trying to operate sustainably, but it simply isn't working for my bottom line. It isn't working for my team on the ground. And so we're able to kind of come in and serve both of those desires by saying, look, we'll have the data to prove you, you've hit X, Y, and Z sustainability benchmark. But then we also, we're really experienced. Our, a lot of our team and our product designers have worked in quick service restaurants and have worked kind of within supply chain and logistics. So we can speak these languages firsthand of teams on the ground. Um, and so I think that that's really helped us in terms of getting this positive momentum is understanding back to kind of what we've already talked about. There's a lot of stakeholders in a circular system and they all need to work together for this to truly work at scale. So you've kind of kind of come to the table with that kind of full service offering so that everybody's aligned from day one. Very cool. I mean, you, you've called out some of these. I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, like, you know, from the consumer side and from the uh, consumer being the uh, the student or the diner, and then the business side as in the university or the, whoever is the kind of key decision maker here that you're selling. What do you think are like the biggest hurdles that they need to overcome? You know, you talked about returning is obviously the the kind of key hurdle, but it's probably something that they've already experienced. But like when you come in, what is that kind of hurdle that you have to get over? Yeah. For students, it's just like everyday consumers, like, you know, probably you and me is there's laggers and there's leaders. There's a group of people who will do this at all costs because they believe in sustainability and they believe it's the right thing to do. But there's the vast majority of users who just need this to be as convenient as possible. At the end of the day, they want it to feel like it's as easy as single use. Um, and I think that's really kind of what will always be the challenge is how do we make this feel as easy as single use? Um, and that can come from kind of marketing and messaging and really going for altruism on why this is the better thing to do, as well as these kind of carrot and the stick incentives of a late fee or a reward that kind of help build that muscle memory. Um, we do, and we're kind of starting to see this in real time with more data, understand is what's that kind of muscle memory point where a consumer has used this program or tried reuse enough times where that's just their default. They've built the muscle memory and now feels as easy as single use and they can continue doing that. So I think that's one big data study that we're working on right now, um, which we kind of have enough users to really have a more statistically significant picture of at the course in the next few months. 
And then for the decision makers and for the businesses, I mean, it's the same story that we really hear in campus spaces and broad corporate environments in B2B supply chains is really show me the data. Like this sounds great, but I don't want to be the leader. I want to just like help the cause, right? And so I think as, again, it all comes back to like building up those data reasons on this. If you take this risk as a business or if you make the shift as a business, you really will see the returns that are important to you. And that's where, you know, everybody has different time horizons. The reality of sustainability from everything, if it's reuse or it's, you know, renewable energy is that kind of return time is shorter and it or is longer and it takes more investment up front. But then at the long tail, you really do see better returns. And so it's really just coming to the table with that data and with that path towards kind of the end of the tunnel and making sure that's really clear for stakeholders. Very interesting. So like, what is the business model? And I, I guess like, what do they need to invest in outside of Topanga to make this all work? And are you kind of just bundling the packaging and the service of it through the software together? Kind of, it's whatever you could share on, on how this all works and how it kind of scales over time as the universities or whomever want to do more of this. Uh, let's say they want to go from one to all their dine, dining halls. Um, you know, what would that look like? Yeah. Um, so we really, we have a network of packaging manufacturers across food and supply chain and like a whole range of packaging that we'll work with and we'll refer into a project as makes sense. But that's not part of our monetization strategy. Um, because again, every type of packaging has like its execution where it might be the best solution given a client's goals. Our true model and our expertise is really in the software. Um, just like kind of any SaaS platform, right? There's platform fee, there's usage-based fee, and it pretty much works like software. <laughs> Very interesting. So like they would be paying per for each item in the system, presumably, like some recurring fee. So there is always this like kind of, um, there's always a cost to this. There's never like a, like, oh, I, I've paid off my my one container and it's just gravy at this point. It's like essentially free, but you would just pay like a small fee for each. Yeah. A small amount of money every month for the number of containers. It kind of depends. Uh, we have a range of different kind of contract models, but yeah, the reason it's paid and it's not free is because there's always somebody doing mm. the work, right? Whether that's somebody washing the container, whether that's somebody picking up the containers from the return bin, right? Whether it's somebody who just needs to buy the upfront packaging free, like there's this element of work that always deserves to be rewarded. Um, and so I think that's why it is, there is, there are fees involved. Typically whoever owns the packaging and whoever's loaning it out is the one who's going to be paying that fee. Um, cause it's kind of on, it's their incentive to get the packaging back in circulation. Right. And then as far as the labor versus like a customer. Yeah. And as far as the labor for for like Sorry. washing or transporting things, is that all born on the university? I'm assuming like you're purely again, you're just a tech company. You're helping them track, measure, instrument this whole program. Um, but yeah, yeah, it depends. Again, depends. Um, there, we have a network of third-party washers and logistics providers that we work with across different partners. Um, other partners, the labor and the collections piece is fully in-house. 
Um, so both are possible. Um, obviously the more kind of the more providers and the more different kind of operations that you get within a system, the more critical it is that everybody has some commonality of the same language and the same data so that you can really see full picture. What are the charges? What's the cost of this? And what is the visibility into how long it takes for something to get back into circulation? How often something is getting back into circulation before it's lost throughout the system? Um, so that kind of at scale, it, it still makes sense. Um, but yeah, it's super, super flexible, truthfully, at the end of the day. Again, I think that's why we're pretty keen on having an API-based method and a software method is it allows us to support a range of systems across varying scales of maturity and third-party partners so that, again, it's just full picture visibility um, is possible. Um, and what, what have you seen as far as like success when it comes to like putting these, you know, the drop-off stations are, is there any data there when it comes to like the washing state, I guess what do you, the, the collection state, you know, bins where you're getting the containers back. Um, I'm assuming, I guess I originally was thinking that consumers would just like wash it at home, but they're not doing that. Obviously they're just literally treating it like single use and dropping it in, in there. I mean, if, if I, yeah. and I would not have a dishwasher in my dorm, um, or I never did. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. yeah, I guess like what, what have you learned there as far as like the, what be, what works to, to drive the right consumer behavior when it comes to returning things and getting them washed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a range of things. I think at the end of the day, it truly is people are people <laughs> and everybody has something different that's going to motivate them to take the right action. Right. So trends we see, among one group of consumers might be very different across others. The main thing that's consistent for our programs is the system of accountability. So there are kind of timeline expectations baked in and automated kind of return reminders if you haven't taken the action. So we're really kind of holding your hand to do the right thing. And we've seen even just that act of checking in and being present drives the outcome that we want to see versus just kind of this black box method of please do this action, but nobody's going to follow up with you one-on-one. -on -one. That's kind of where a lot of the loss is seen. And the cost is never borne on like, at least in most of these deployments, it's never borne on the students or the diners. It's mostly like the university is basically the one that's nagging you to get it back. It's not like you're going to get charged for the cost of the you know, container if you don't bring it back or that they're getting charged a dollar up front and they return it back to their credit when they return it? Or is that also a possibility? Yeah, it depends. Depends on the program. Um, all of our programs are today are free to play. So there's no extra cost to participate. Um, but there are a handful that do mm. have a late fee. So you it's free to participate. But then if you don't play by the rules and you don't return the container, you will get charged a late fee or you might get charged a late fee. Um, so yeah, there is, it really depends. Again, I think that's where it comes down to the system owner who, again, I would say by and large is whoever owns the packaging on what type of kind of quote unquote scheme or kind of deposit method or charge method that they want to deploy based off of their understanding of their audience. Makes a lot of sense. So yeah, you're just providing kind of the, the picks and shovels. Mm -hmm. And of course we have data and kind of 
tools to help inform what makes sense, but it's more picks and shovels. It sounds like a lot easier than being the dishwasher um, or the the logistics schlepper, as I would call them. Yeah, it's both both have to exist, yes. but um, our specialty is is much more yes. on the software side. You would not be valued like a tech company if um, you were in the business of washing containers and doing the software. You'd have to split them apart. It's true. Exactly. I'd love to talk a little bit beyond the campuses into kind of the food delivery side of things. Um, so marketplaces like Grubhub, meal delivery services. Why are they calling you? How are you working with them? Uh, and like what other kind of players fit in this uh, bucket of, you know, kind of non-campus potential customers? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I would say it's kind of the same variables in campus or non-campus space, which is who's using the packaging, who's responsible for getting the packaging back to where it needs to be sanitized or refulfilled, and then who is in charge of sanitizing it, right? Um, We do also some non-food and beverage work, in which case the sanitization, especially in B2B environments, like this is supply chain, kind of large shipment boxes, sanitization isn't a piece of the pie, but there's still this internal variable of who's going to oversee logistics to make sure these containers get back to where they need to be refilled and who's kind of responsible for managing the system at large. So the same stakeholders really come into play in any environment. Um, at least when evaluating, like, do we have the ingredients for success here? Why I think people are coming to us is for that same kind of talking point I mentioned before is full picture visibility. I don't just want to do this because I think it's a right thing to do. I want to do this and have it be core to my business practices because at the end of the day, I will have to change my internal operations in order to execute this. So we might as well be doing so intentionally. And that's really where, again, like depending on the maturity of a program and depending on what's needed, we might pull in a third party dishwasher or we might pull in a third party logistics provider who we're happy to work with because we all kind of need to come to the table together to bring these systems to life at scale. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the key differences with like, you know, meal delivery versus, you know, college campus food service um, is the lack of like physical return points or drop off points. Right. And so like, I guess, how do you, I guess, I think I saw that you were working with Cook Unity, if I'm not mistaken. I'm curious um, how that, what, what, whatever you can share about that kind of, those kinds of partnerships more broadly, because um, there's definitely people listening to this podcast who have those kinds of companies that might be interested. But like, what are you offering kind of, you know, how are you designing these things? And then with those companies and like what other third party uh logistics companies like a dispatch goods, et cetera, would you have to partner with to make it all complete, you know, completely integrated? Yeah. Um, dispatch goods is an amazing partner. They work with cook unity as well. Um, so they're a great example of someone who's like an essential part of making this system come to life. Right. Um, if we can't actually sanitize these reusables so that they can be reused, well then, you know, the program's never going to get off the ground day one. Um, but I think it's exactly that. It's, okay, this is the framework of your supply chain, and this is how this piece of reusable packaging is going to move from point A to point B to point C back to point A. That's kind of where we'll start in a given conversation. 
And then it's like, okay, we're, we can cover the tracking throughout the system. Who oversees point C? Is that a third party logistics who's dropping all of these meals off to the customer's doorsteps? Okay, great. Are they the same ones who can also pick up empties, right? Do they come back to the warehouse at the end of each day? And if so, okay, great. Let's look at those integration opportunities and let's start to plan a system where somebody who's already going to be at the destination can also drop off and pick up, right? That's in meal prep and delivery. That's kind of baked in, which is awesome because a lot of these are subscription services. So I think it's really just starting with a map of the system and understanding what are the lowest friction points in which somebody who's already executing a task or somebody who's already involved in the system could kind of help switch it from that linear to circular point. Um, so again, that's really between that and an ROI assessment is really where we start when looking at new business opportunities and kind of start with feasibility of this would be the lift to get this fully implemented. And this would be kind of the long-term ROI opportunity. If that's something that you're ready to work towards, let's absolutely go. If it's something that you're still not ready to commit to, then like here are some lower left ideas that you all could do without us um, to start to prove out these long-term opportunities. Yeah, it seems like it can get quite complex. And I saw you working with the rounds, uh, which is grocery delivery, which mm-hmm. seems like, you know, if I think about my weekly s- shop, it's a lot, you know, it would be, or even just going to the farmer's market, there's just a lot that needs to be containerized that would to get it delivered, right? And so um, how extensible is your work that what you're doing with these dining halls and these canvases to something like that and like how are they how are they in particular leveraging you if you don't mind sharing mm-hmm. i'm also very curious about this company called loop that used to do this and seems to have like kind of pivoted away from you know sending people containers and re yeah uh, it seems like a total mess with the re- reverse logistics um <laughs> i think they kind of pivoted yeah they did pivot yeah um and look it's the same again we're in kind of a the position where our execution is truly the same throughout. We're track and trace asset managers. Um, so we can really help you regardless of kind of what your system looks like or what you're looking to grow into, right? But the reality is it is complicated. It's like it's it's supply chains are complicated when they're linear. So making them circular is just as complicated as designing a linear one, right? But if there's intentionality, these are when we're talking about food and beverage, like these are margin thin businesses, right? (laughs) Nobody really opens a grocery store to get rich quickly, right? And so the reality is if you see the opportunity to even make some more of that margins back through reuse, which it really does provide, well then some of these short-term shifts and operations really do pay off. And that's really when I think it comes down to intentionality and back to kind of full circle back to the start of our conversation with like what, how do you define circular economy? Like if you're just slapping it on a corporate mission statement and putting a goal of 2030 next to it, well, chances are you're not going to achieve that because you're not going to put in the work to actually measure and develop an intentional plan to execute what needs to be executed. But if you're really intentional and you understand not just you want to be more circular, but exactly which ways you'd like to kind of reduce waste and deploy systems of reuse, then it's really attainable. It just takes kind of intentionality. Um, so yes, it's complicated, 
but it's not by any means more complicated than a regular supply chain. It's just a shift in thinking. Are there any examples that um, you can call out of, of a good, anyone doing a good job in grocery with this or even what the rounds are doing as far as this is a very fat to me, that's like the biggest, one of the biggest hurdles is like, you know, okay. Someone getting a cook unity pre-prepared meal and a re reusable container. Um, it's pretty much one-to-one, -one, but when you think about like every manufacturer <laughs> in your grocery shop, like essentially changing their packaging or unbundling that and repackaging re that, you know, kind of the loop idea, it seems like, again, back to, you know, you're saying of it being on the other end of the, you know, complexity um, of the spectrum of being com complex versus simple. So yeah, just curious, like what you're seeing today working in that space. Yeah, I would say today, truthfully, I haven't seen a great example of some uh, organization executing reuse with kind of multi-branded products. So what I mean there is the rounds and cook unity are amazing examples of kind of what they're doing, but it's not like they're sourcing goods from Procter and Gamble and Nestle and then delivering right. them to customers, which is the grocery store. A grocery store is like hundreds of different manufacturers whose products are ending up on their shelves. And then that would need to be kind of returned sanitized and redistributed to hundreds of different manufacturers, right? Like that's where it gets super complex. And that's where I think these systems need to evolve to allow for kind of universal universality in packaging types. So like, great, I maybe I got Bob's Red Mill Oats and I'm gonna return this container, but next time I plan to pick up like store mm -hmm. brand oats. And how can I ensure that like, any container can go back and be refilled for any type of product right. good, broadly speaking, right, within the realm of possibilities versus it needs to be like all of these specific yeah. branded containers have to get back to brand yeah. A. And I mean, <laughs> if you start to think about it, like the more complex and the more kind of players that are involved, that typically just means that that kind of break even point is further and yeah. further out, right? Because it takes longer to get the packaging reused, which that cost per use is the ultimate equation, right? So it's possible. Um, but again, it's just really right. takes getting everybody speaking the same language and everybody aligned on the, on the goals. Right. So it's got to be a grocer that indexes heavily on private label. Uh, or is just doing their prepared food, right. like an Air One here in, in LA. Um, that would be a great customer yeah. for you. Or you know anything that feels more like a meal service and less like a smattering of pantry and fresh items at your local Kroger or an Instacart shop. Uh, that's going to be a lot yeah. further. It's got to be something tightly integrated end to end. They're owning all the rails, uh, all the drivers. Yeah, picnic comes to mind and. In the Netherlands, mm -hmm. which is a milkman-like service, but again, they're working with third-party brands. And there's a there's one that I I wrote about called um, what's the one in LA? Re, uh, Re grocery. They would be great. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, they would. Um, or even like you know, you think of a like a Whole Foods private label, and then you think, okay, you can also order that through Amazon. So there's this owned last mile logistics play, like they could really like get enough data to prove out why this is good to start to kind of enforce or lead the way for all these other brands. 
But yeah, I think again, like what is that barrier? The barrier is data that there's a return at the end of the line. Right. So Amazon could do it just for its private label and just keep everything else the same. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. That's another interesting thought, which is like you can just yeah. be some percentage of a basket, which I don't know if anyone's think, coming mm-hmm. to you like that, asking for that. But that's also making a dent. Yeah. The rounds kind of, they have a, a split. Um, and yeah, of private label and other brands. Um, so yeah. It's like, as we come towards the end of the conversation, I'm just curious, like if you could share, you know, some tidbits as somebody who is very environmentally minded on what, what are some simple ways that we can start taking action towards reducing our waste footprint, um, reusing more things and, um, like just give us some very, very easy, actionable tidbits of advice that we could follow. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, the kind of day-to-day consumer advice is very similar to the corporate advice, which is don't like paint this big lofty goal of this perfect sustainability thing that you want to achieve. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be a lot better if you can get really habitual about the little changes versus change everything overnight and then forget about it a month later because it was too hard to keep up with, right? I think like even for me, like as I was starting to get more invested in sustainability personally and understand kind of what it means to me, it's can be the littlest things like, yes, turn off all the lights when you leave the house or like just get in the habit of always having a reusable tote bag and a reusable coffee mug in your pocket or like in your bag or in (laughs) your car, right? Just in your trunk. Right, right, right. Just like get in that habit or like get the water bottle. I think right now we have seen like reusable water bottles have really like that shift has turned. And so like go to the airport. One, you'll save money. You don't have to buy that plastic water bottle. But two, like you also are saving that plastic water bottle, right? So I would say it's really start with one or two things that you can actually hold yourself accountable to execute and then go from there. It is, it's kind of like that loose thread on a sweater where once you start kind of pulling and getting curious about one facet of sustainability or one idea that you could switch, you kind of keep going and you keep looking deeper, but it starts with kind of getting that one thing down that's meaningful to you to build that long-term interest. Very cool. Yeah. I feel like hydro flask is like kind of become this new athleisure kind of trend and which is a great, a great thing to see. Yeah. It's it's the norm. It's great to, to Mm -hmm. clink, clink bottles with fellow uh, environmentally (laughs) circular minded people. Exactly. Um, And I guess the last question I have is like, if you could just, you know, put on your like futurist cap for a second and look, you know, 10 years into the future, you've been able to essentially, you know, design the perfect grocery store experience or eating at a fast casual restaurant or ordering something from either of those businesses to be delivered to your home, you know, so that's looking at the retail side of food and beverage and then looking at how those things get delivered uh, for those convenience use cases. Like, what do you think that will look like? Yeah, great question. Um, I think it really is where reuse is the norm, but also kind of these other elements of sustainability that we're starting to hear more and more about are also the norm. So imagine, you know, 
you exit a grocery store or you exit the mall where there's a lot of restaurants and there's a food scrap compost bin right next to a reusable container drop off, right? Like that should just be the norm where rather than think, do I send this to the landfill or do I recycle this? It's really more like, okay, I can compost this and I can reuse this, right? I think it's really shifting us away from this belief that recycling is the default and creating the tools and the awareness and kind of the frameworks where opting into composting and reuse is really just as easy and just as kind of convenient. Yeah, I will say I will give a, so I live in Silver Lake and I recently had a very Silver Lake afternoon of going to like Sweet Green, Erewhon and Intelligentsia. Uh huh. Very, very Silver Lake of you. <laughs> Props to Sweet Green for having instructions that say, here are all the things that go into this bin. Everything is compostable, including their forks and knives, which was great. Mm -hmm. But then you go to Erewhon and, you know, you would think like, you know, this premium product that these guys, they're all th thinking about health and wellness, that they're thinking about sustainability. Absolutely not. Yeah. They just had a trash can on the outside. I don't even, I think there was a recycling, but you're, you can't recycle a $20 Haley Bieber smoothie. Yeah. You got to wash it out. <laughs> so, uh -huh. yeah. you know, it was there was no composting, nothing. There was no signage around what to do. And a lot of people do like to hang out there and consume right on the spot. So, I found that to be two two ends of the spectrum, literally two places right across the street from each other with the same similar clientele. One doing yeah. a very good job, one not doing a good job. Yeah. Um, and it's funny too, because like the signs on the recycling bin and the trash bin, like you do that once and that doesn't take that much work, but like, obviously as a consumer, it, it's meaningful because it helps you understand what you can do. So like there are, there's things that businesses can do to kind of help participate in sustainability, even if it's unrealistic for them to, you know, switch to a hundred percent reuse tomorrow. So again, it's where can you dedicate getting started and that will make a difference. Um, well, this has been very eye-opening and thought-provoking, so thank you for um, for educating us about everything. If uh, I guess we have a lot of different people listening to this. If they're interested in getting in, in touch to hear more or engineers that want to come work with you, how do they get in touch? Yeah, uh, please send me an email. Uh, it is page, like a book, P-A-G-E at topanga.io. I'd love to chat or hear any ideas. Okay, great. So everyone will just email you now. Yeah. Uh, customers, email me. everything. Okay, great. <laughs> okay, awesome. That's the way we get better is we hear from people. Otherwise, we don't know. <laughs> I love it. I love the openness. Okay, well, thanks again. And uh, we'll be, I'll be following closely. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry with No You, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter.